Welcome to Tech Together's Founders Journey Series. In this series, we talk with the founders and leaders from leading tech startups. We learn about their founders' journey to building their current businesses. I'm your host, Alex Norman, co-founder of Tech Together and partner at N49P. Today's guest is Avlok Kohli, a serial entrepreneur with two exits behind him and a current CEO at Angelus Ventures. Today, we'll talk about his journey from Waterloo to Silicon Valley, from founder to CEO in the state of the venture market. Avlok, uh, thanks for joining us today. Cool. Thanks for thanks for having me. Excited to do this. I'm glad you can make it. Uh, being all the way out in the West Coast in Silicon Valley, uh, it's really appreciate it. Why don't we start way back at the beginning? You know, you you went to University of Waterloo. Why'd you do that? Like, what were you hoping to get out of University of Waterloo? Um, actually, I wasn't originally hoping to go to University of Waterloo. I didn't really have a plan uh, in high school. I was enjoying it a little too much. Um, and uh, my brother actually went to University of Waterloo. He did. Uh, he was doing computer science when I was in high school, and he basically just framed it as it's very hard to get into. Um, and I was like, great, I like a challenge. And that actually was my accidental move to go to Waterloo and to do software engineering. It basically was, what's the hardest thing I can do, um, and how can I be around the smartest people? And yeah, I obviously haven't looked back since. It's been great. I love that answer. You know, so lots of people will be just come retroactive answer. You know, this was always my dream, but I love the honesty and the, the desire for a challenge. So like many University of Waterloo grads, uh, you basically graduated and you went to Silicon Valley. Why? So uh, kind of it's a similar thing to my move to, uh, or to Waterloo. I didn't actually have plans to go to Silicon Valley after graduating. Um, I, went to work for a company in Toronto and it was great. Um, it was a software company. Uh, I've worked with them through my co-op. Uh, Waterloo has a co-op program where you actually go to work yeah. every few months and was loving it, enjoying it uh, and enjoying the Toronto life. And a friend of mine had moved to uh, Bay Area, uh, Silicon Valley uh, and raised money for his first company there. And uh, I just remember, actually I was on a treadmill running when I got the call and he was like, Hey, you really do need to come out. And I was like, no, I'm actually, you know, quite set in Toronto. I love it here. And he's like, no, just come out for one weekend. And, and so I did that. I flew out uh, to San Francisco. Uh, actually, back then it was it was Cupertino because yeah. San Francisco wasn't really the center of tech. Um, I spent a weekend, went to a couple of conferences uh, and fell in love with it. So I actually flew back. I quit almost instantly and I <laughs> drove my car down. Uh, I think it was two weeks or three weeks later. It was really fast. Um, I just, I, the second I landed here, it just felt like the energy was better. The average intelligence was just insanely high with respect to tech, which is what I was really excited about. Um, so for what I was doing and what I wanted to build, it just, and the ambition, it just felt like that that was my place. And uh, yeah, I haven't looked back since either. So I, I, you know, I love that. So, did you actually have a job when you packed up your car or did you just cross the border and say, yeah, I'm going on a vacation? Um, yeah, I guess I could talk about it now since I have my citizenship. <laughs> um, hopefully I don't revoke my citizenship. I don't think so that's possible. Basically, I, I kind of hacked my way into uh, a lot of the visas. Um, I did not have a job. Uh, I basically, when I landed here, ended up convincing a company to hire me for marketing. Uh, I am not a marketer. But they hired me for marketing. I helped out with a few things. And, you know, from there over the years, uh, at one point I had, I must have had four parallel team visas. 
because I was I was uh, pretty paranoid about going over the border. And uh, just for context, TN visa is a temporary visa, yeah. and uh, it's something where the uh, someone when you go across the border, they can actually just take it away. So I was overly paranoid, st- overstacked on TN visas, and so at all point I had a backup plan and a backup backup plan. <laughs> Uh, in case something happens with the visa. And I sort of like kept that going for many, many years. Um, I have many stories around that. I won't bore the uh, the audience with that. I'm going to have to get a beer with you to discuss that because I've been on a TN1 and H1B and all sorts of visas. In the- I got, I have everything at this point. I had TN, H1B, O1, green card, now the citizenship. <laughs> well, congrats <laughs> on being a, a dual citizen. So, um, so you start with a marketing job. But I think from what I can tell, your first software engineer job was Zvents, and yeah. you know, how did you make that transition? Um, and did that get you into, I think, the inner core? Because I feel like the Valley, there's one thing participating in energy, and there's another one being part of the Valley. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> short answer is no. Working for a company um, first, it was Zvents, and then Doximity. It did not give me access to the founder network or the investor network. That just came from being a founder. It came from building something interesting and being within that group. Um, and, and this was back in you know, 2010, 2011. Yeah. Uh, so the journey to Zvents was really a pretty standard journey. It was um, uh, that that one was actually related to the visa. I needed to have a uh, have a job to, in order to stay in the country. So had a uh, had to work for Zvents and it was great. Actually met, met a lot of great people there. And then Doximity was something similar as I, I was actually recruited into Doximity. Um, they were pre-launch, it's now a public company. So it was really great to see, uh, you know, that, that company go through that journey and it's actually doing very well now. Um, and then what ha- the reason it was only, I only spent six months at Doximity. The reason it was six months was because that was actually right when I was starting my first company in 2011. Um, and I still remember the conversation with Jeff, who's the founder or CEO there. He's like, why would you leave this company? Is, like, <laughs> everything about this company is great. Cause it was like, I was there pre-launch and helped launch it. And uh, it was very clear from the early days that it was going to be an incredible company. And I said, I just, I, I got to do this. I have no choice. Like I, I'm just called to go to a company to do a startup. And that's actually what led to me getting networked into the founder investor circle was actually starting a company and being in the mix of it. So love that the importance of being a founder to meet other founders is key, but imagine at working at Z events and Doximity, is there anything you took away that had helped play you with your future success? Like what were the insights that either impacted your first startup or impacted you since? Yeah, I would say the, the thing I took away from Z events was, um, you really do need to build a large scale company, right? When you think about venture funding, um, venture funding means that um, that you can have all the capital you need or you, you need to build a large scale company, but the goal is to build a large scale company. And when I think about large scale, I think about at least hundred million in revenue, but honestly, I think it really should be a billion in revenue, right? It, that, that's just the scale that you're talking, the scale of the ambition. And Zvents um, did make a play at it, but didn't quite make that. And they, they were ultimately acquired by uh, StubHub. And with Doximity, what I took away from that experience was the importance of um, distribution, right? The one thing Doximity nailed very early on was, uh, and for context, Doximity yeah. is, um, is basically a product that helps doctors across the US network with each other. Um, and then there's all there's deep set of products like 
different products that they can actually now use with each other. Um, and from the early days, literally from like what before even pre-launch, distribution was baked into the product. And um, so much so that the original distribution was um, uh, a doctor inviting their uh, medical school classmates and then they get a fax, right? A fax is sent to the, to the hospital. And then the doctor takes the fax and he's like, oh, wow, I haven't heard from this person in a while. Okay, yeah, let me go download this app and let me go sign up online. That's what it was, right? Distribution was baked in and it worked, right? It worked. Wow. Um, and I, I took that away from that experience. And, and, and uh, I carry that actually with me to the very first company, which was, yep, ingrained into me. Distribution matters. It really, really matters. You can't just build a product and assume that people, uh, you know, the customers that are, are going to find value are just going to, you know, come across it. You really do have to be very deliberate about how this thing will grow. Uh, have you tried to do another company with distribution via fax? I did not, but um, uh, uh, the first company I started was Doximity uh, for yeah. lawyers, right? Interesting. Yeah. So I, you know, this was uh, many lessons in it, um, uh, but it was definitely a company that was done by analogy, um, which was, hey, if this works for uh, doctors, then there could be a similar product for lawyers. And we actually, uh, my founder and I actually built distribution into it where we figured out a way to connect lawyers to each other, right? Classmates to each other. Yeah. Uh, except you don't need to do a fax. You have email, right? And, and we did it. We launched it and it worked. It, the distribution was off the charts. Uh, I think we hit 10% of all US lawyers at one point that had actually like opened it and signed up, right? But what followed was a lot of, uh, ang you know, not a lot, but some very angry lawyers that, that I'll, you know, leave for another time as well. That, that's a whole other story. So, so that first startup, you know, you got distribution right, but the pro it sounds like the product was, wasn't a huge success. Yeah. Then you went on and started uh, FastBite. Um, so what was your approach here? How did you know, you know it was a food delivery company? Um, yep. And so, and I think, what was inspiration behind it? And how are you thinking about this market? Because at that point, there was already a few other competitors out there and funded. Yeah. So, you know, coming out of the very first company, what I wanted to do was actually build a product for myself, right? Um, because I'm not a lawyer, uh, you know, I could intuit what lawyers may need or may want, but I wasn't a lawyer. So it was very hard to build for myself uh, for the first company. And so for the second one, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm only going to build for myself now. And uh, I basically just took a look at the different problems I have. And I, I kind of thought about different problems I wanted to tackle. And Fastbite really came uh, from an observation uh, that, you know, I was ordering food every day. This was very early days of food delivery, by the way. Yeah. I mean, th th these days, this is Grubhub was the primary, um, you know, primary uh, uh, product that people would use. And DoorDash was just getting started, but not in cities. Um, Uber Eats obviously was not a thing. And then Postmates was just getting started, right? So very early days just to set everything up. Um, and so the delivery times back then were like an hour, 20 minutes, an hour and a half in San Francisco. And I, by the way, I was living in like core San Francisco. So it was quite long. And the observation I had uh, with my own ordering behavior and my friends was that they, they, they would order this similar things, right? Uh, for yeah. lunch and dinner. And so the thought was, well, why do you need to uh, place the order? And then someone needs to go make it. And then someone needs to go pick it up. 
why can't you just predict what people will order and then you, uh, you pre-make it uh, and then you can deliver it. And you can obviously tightly constrain it so the food is still hot and warm and great, right, fresh. Um, and then once you do that, you can then create a almost like a localized delivery map, right? You can take each zip code. I mean, that's basically what we did in the early days. Yeah. Each zip code had its own set of couriers and the food, the food was there. And the part that got me very excited about it was that the delivery time uh, improvement was an order of magnitude better than what, what it was back then. Uh, like our average delivery time was seven minutes. It was extremely fast. You would just order it. It would show up and it felt like magic. And as hmm. soon as I had that feeling, because I, I, I built the I built the first app myself, yeah. I had the first courier myself. And I remember the, the first delivery they made to me, I was just like, holy shit, this is awesome. Uh, and then a few of my friends uh, tried it out and they had the similar experience. Like, wow, this is awesome. And it's that feeling of magic that matters when it comes to building a product that will make it. And th that's also what I was mentioning earlier, where when, when you talk about a building a venture scale business, you need liftoff, right? Liftoff comes from a feeling of magic where customers are just so um, amazed, like they're surprised. How is this even possible? And so once that emotional reaction was there, I knew I was onto something. And I guess the fast came from seven minute delivery. And I like that you had, I guess, local, very dense geographical density and network effects. So yeah. how did it go? And because you, you quickly got acquired by Square. So tell us a bit about how it went and why Square purchased you. I think a lot of it also just has to do with right timing um, in, with, with the case of Square and Fastbyte. So Square um, had an office in San Francisco and it just happened to be one of the um, area codes that we delivered to early on. I think it was like a few area codes away from my house. That's basically how I determined like, what the area codes were that we're going <laughs> to deliver to. So Square happened to have a uh, their office pretty close to us. And Square had just acquired Caviar um, in uh, summer of 2014. And the delivery time on Caviar was also still quite long. And so the delivery time was a competitive vector, right? If you can bring the delivery time down, you can go take market share. And Fastbyte delivery times were amazing just by design, right? We'd actually constrain, we basically constrained the product, just like Twitter constrains the product yeah. into, well, now you know, it's long tweets, but it was 140 characters. Um, we constrained the product by like limiting the options and you get fast delivery. And uh, Square wanted to own both ends of the delivery spectrum, the super fast one, and then it takes a little bit longer. And over time, the view was it was all going to converge as the network gets denser and everything. Um, it does converge, but in the early days, it matters to gain market share. Uh, and, and so a lot of it just ended up being uh, literally right place, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then right timing. Um, and, but, but it just came from a, uh, for me, it just came from a place of, I just wanted to see this product exist in the world. You know, at that time, I wasn't really thinking about, uh, I, I mean, I thought about, uh, actually, I did think about the current state of the market, you know, which VCs are invested in which companies and they would be, uh, you know, they would be conflicted out. But it wasn't really the, the primary mode of how I was thinking. I was more thinking about what are the customers going to want and what do I want to build? And that's it. And then you joined the Square, which, you know, and I guess under Caviar, but it was a rocket ship. You interacted mm -hmm. with Jack Dorsey. What did you learn? Like, you know, Square seems to be one of the fastest growing companies the last 10 years or was. And mm -hmm. you were there again at the right time. So what was your takeaway from the experience? 
Oh, oh man, I could probably do a whole podcast episode <laughs> just on that. Um, if I was to pick one thing, the one thing that stood out to me from my time at Square in terms of Jack's leadership is that you don't always need to have your team agree with you. In fact, you're going to make decisions that most of the company won't agree with, and it's okay. You just call it out, just state it. People will be frustrated. It doesn't matter. It's okay. You're still going to do it anyway. So it's the importance of sticking to your intuition uh, and stick to your gut because most of the big decisions that companies have to make, they're not obvious in the moment. There are many reasons to say no. In fact, there are many high probability reasons to say no, high conviction reasons to say no, but that doesn't matter because when you're dealing with um, decisions that could have high upside and that could change the trajectory of the company, um, no one but the founder or the CEO can truly make those decisions. And those decisions will always, almost always be unpopular, right? It, by definition, it's the, it's, the, it's the view that, it's the contrary view that most people don't have. That will be unpopular and it's okay. It's perfectly fine. And there were many of these moments when I was at Square um, and the way he just addressed it, addressed it head on, acknowledged it and still said, we're not always going to have to agree and it's okay. So I love that. A couple, I want to double click on that a bit. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, how, what was this, when he made these decisions, what did he expect the rest of the team to react? Does he expect, hey, this is a decision, get behind it um, and let's make it a success or you know, how, how do you ensure that? That's the, I mean, that, you know, that's the only way to do it. Recommit concept, which I think um, Amazon and maybe popularized in terms of that phrase, but yeah, you have to disagree and commit. You can't have infighting in a company. Once a decision's made, it's made, move forward, right? Once a, an individual who's responsible for a decision has, has made the decision with their skin in the game, meaning they're, they're on the hook, uh, whether it's good or bad, just move forward, right? No more infighting. Let's just get the work done. And this, I was talking to another founder privately this week, and actually he said something similar to me. What, what he says his job as a founder, because it's a bit it's a later stage Canadian company, is to put risk back in the company. Mm -hmm. Is that what you view Jack was doing here? He's like, okay, here's something with high upside. I might have a probability fail, but I can put my neck in the line and do it. Is that is that what is this just another way of saying founder's job is to continue pushing the company and add risk that can pay off? Yeah, I actually don't think about it as risk, adding okay. risk. I think about it as actually eliminates risk. Oh, okay? interesting. Going back to the concept of a venture scale company means that uh, as a technology company, you need to keep growing, right? You have to continue to keep growing and get into larger and larger and larger markets. And the, the risk of not doing something is incredibly high because if you know that your current product is just going to taper off, like you've hit the yeah. top of the S curve um, or it's just not working, not doing something is actually the biggest risk in the world. Um, and in fact, taking, uh, you know, really good bets and, and making those decisions actually eliminates risk. You're not even betting the company, you're eliminating risk uh, from the company because at some point that debt, that bill will be, will, will come due. And, and that bill typically comes due when all of your best people leave the company because, you know, they actually have, they have other companies to work for. And this is actually something I say at Angelus all the time, which is we're not competing with companies in our industry. I think that's like, I think most people confuse that. We're competing with every other tech company that exists out there that's growing very fast, right? Because we're competing yeah. to work with the best of the best people in the world. 
Um, and the best of the best people in the world have a lot of options, right? And so that's the way I think about it. So I love that because you, you first, you early on, you said, hey, you need venture scale. That's like 100 million plus in revenue. But now you've added a second caveat that is, even if you get there, you have to be continuously growing. So it's, exactly. it's not like get to 100 million and stop growing. It's 100 million and mm -hmm. still have a growth vector. Um, yeah. Which, which, and, and if you see like companies like AW, you know, I, call, I yeah. consider AWS a separate company just because it's, it's so huge. You know, AWS, these companies are so giant, like so massive. And they were growing like 30%, 40% year over year at that scale. You know, like the, that's, that's the, like, if, if you talk about, you know, what's the gold medal, that's the gold medal. Right. And, and this is another thing I've actually noticed about the early stage market, um, at early and mid stage market in venture is I think it does shield a lot of founders for it, for a good and the bad, right. Every, everything has a trade off. It shields them around what real scale looks like and what real ambition looks yeah. like sometimes. Right. Because there's a lot of celebration around fundraising rounds and the amount that someone's raised. Um, but when you really fast forward and you think about what real scale looks like, it's different. I actually remember when I was when when I first got the square and I sort of like settled in and uh, and, you know, I'd actually un understood the revenue before joining. But I kind of settled in and looked at their entire tra trajectory as a company. And you would just see like where they started and how they grew revenue. And you just look at it and you're like, yep, this is the gold standard. This is actually what all founders should be aspiring to build. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. A lot of founders don't even understand that. That the gold standard is aggressive revenue growth early on. And then as you're, uh, and every company is different, depends on like what yeah. bet you're making. Because sometimes you're building a network effect. So you want to, you know, you, you want to actually be fine with not making as much revenue in the early days, but generally when things really start picking up, they really pick up, right. To build that large scale. And at some point, if you have low growth or you stop growing and you don't have a path to get back to growing again, it's just, it's a tough road as a tech company. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It sounds like it's like a shark has to always be moving forward. Exactly. Um, you always have to move forward, always have to grow. And so you had the time at square, you went to start another company. Uh, I think it was Ferry. It was, you know, the ideas provide hotel like cleaning on a subscription basis. Get another area. But before we get into that, you did, you raised a $4.1 million round. Mm -hmm. And if I look at that round, you had what I call uh, a bunch of super angels that are well known now, maybe less known than like, you know, anyone from Naval to Cyan and Scott Bannister uh, to Jill Pinchina, Charlie Songhurst, uh, and the list goes on. How'd you pull that round together? A couple of them were prior investors. Uh, okay. Bob and Scott were prior investors from um, from uh, actually the first company. So some of them have actually been investors <laughs> across the entire journey. Um, but that that wasn't it, it wasn't a sure shot, right? There was definitely uh, a bit more of like understanding the you know the company and like what, what I was building. Um, ultimately, the reason why that round came together um, was the 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 play with Ferry was intended to be a venture scale play where at scale you have network effects, right? Kind of going yeah. back to what matters is that you have something that over time, when you have network effects, it's just very hard to disrupt. And the idea behind Ferry was you get multiple cleanings a week and um, you can build a dense network, very similar to Fastbite actually, right? You can build a, build a dense network, but rather than delivering food, you're actually cleaning a home. And once you have that network, uh, meaning you have a cleaner that's um, cleaning, uh, like let's say 20 homes all in the same area, 
and they're able to do it cost effectively, uh, then you can lock in that network. So you can lock in these local yeah. networks and then you just scale it out across the company or sorry, across a city and then you launch multiple cities. So the fact that a network effect existed or would exist in the future that can protect it. And the fact that it is such a common need, right? Cleaning, everyone needs cleaning. Those two things combined, you can kind of think it's like one plus one equals like 10. Those are the magical formulas in, in startup in the startup world that are very important, right? How, how can you build something that compounds where then you have moats and it's just really hard for others to compete? Because that's also that, that those are also the businesses that you can protect, right? You can protect from competitors and you're not going to have some other competitor that's going to come in and try and eat your lunch. You'll have a real defensibility there. Uh, but, but that was the main reason why we pulled off that large of a seed round. Yeah. And I imagine also one thing that was unique is again, in the business model there, it was a subscription. Like I remembered other cleaning services use this when you need it, but if you get a subscription service, hopefully people set and forget you have yeah. steady demand. It creates, it exactly. reinforces the network effect. Um, exactly. you started that, you sold the Postmates. Why exit? You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, to be candid, the, the goal was always to build a venture scale company. Yeah. And, um, we launched, we'd actually launched it in San Francisco, New York, and it was running in both cities. Uh, we scaled it to several million in ARR. And uh, we just signed a, um, at that moment, we just signed a partnership to actually go national with a very large property management company. All right. So it was going to essentially go out to like all of these buildings across the US. And of course, that's a moment of like, yes, we did it. Right. Like this is going to be huge. And I remember I sat down and I'm like, all right. Let's now take a look at how we're going to grow supply, right? Yeah. How we can grow great cleaners everywhere. And as I went through it, um, I was like, yeah, this, I, I don't see, I don't see how we can do this in a quality way. How do you maintain quality as you scale? And I actually wrote a whole postmortem on it and, and shared it with uh, a lot of folks. But the, the summary of it was uh, that when it came to truly scaling it out nationally, um, I didn't see a path to doing it while keeping cleaning quality incredibly high. And because I didn't see a path to doing it while keeping cleaning quality incredibly high, I just didn't see a venture scalable business. Yeah. Sure, we could have scaled it to 10 million, 20, 30 million in revenue, but my ambitions have like, you know, like they're just not tied to building a $30 million a year business. It's more tied to building several hundred to billion dollar a year business. That That's what I care about. And as soon as I realized that those two things just they won't fit and it won't work, work for Ferry, um, basically aligned with uh, some of the top investors, shared my thoughts, views. Um, and then from there, decided that, hey, what we've built could be useful to Postmates. And so then started the conversation with Postmates um, and went from there. Cool. And then, you know, based on your previous pattern, I thought, okay, Postmates, another company. Instead, you know, you become the CEO of Angelus Ventures. Yeah. You know, why make that transition? How did that come about? I guess the relationship with Naval probably helped, but why not yeah. start another company? Yeah. So <clears throat> uh, I didn't, I didn't actually join Postmates. Uh, that was always okay. part of the, it was always part of the conversation that I would not be joining mainly because there was just like way too much conflict. And I, I care more about long-term relationships with people I've worked with. Um, so I was pretty upfront with that. In 2019, at that time, after the acquisition was done, I basically was deciding between starting a new company, uh, retiring, because I got I got liquidity from the Square acquisition. I was going to just continue investing. I started investing in 2018. Uh, actually, those are the, really the two options. I was like, great, I'm just going to like hang back from operating um, because I was operating on like pretty much 190%, like 200% for 
a decade then. So I was like, great, I'm actually just going to focus on investing for now, right? I like take some time off, right? Instead, I was, I was so bored the first few weeks. I'm like texting friends like, hey, do you want to go for coffee? And, you know, just really trying to search for that um, adrenaline, right? I was an adrenaline, I was an adrenaline junkie, basically. Um, so it lasted about a few months. Uh, and it was great, actually. I got a bunch of time to think. I accidentally started a company at that time as well, which is still running. It's <laughs> actually doing well. Um, and Naval uh, had approached me to consider uh, stepping in at AngelList. So there were a whole bunch of things that were happening at the same time. That was interesting enough that um, I dug in into AngelList and what was already built at AngelList. And I was familiar with AngelList as a founder because um, Naval had raised a couple of syndicates into Ferry. So I was pretty familiar with the product from that perspective. And after digging in for several months and, and just going back and forth with him around like, hey, what could this become? How could it scale? I remember coming back from a trip uh, internationally and once everything just clicked, I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to do this. Um, and so accepted the role. And then I think uh, I started the next day uh, at an offsite. I was, you know, the day I started, it's like, hey, we have an offsite in the city. Can you come talk to the team? And I'm like, what the, all right. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm going to tell the team, but sure, I'll, I'll join. But yeah, I haven't looked back since. And I could probably do a podcast on just what you've learned and what you've done since joining. But we're going to highlight a couple of things. Like, again, I have a bit of insight was running Canada at the time. Um, the pace of innovation product introductions has increased significantly. How do you, how do you, what was your thoughts about that? How do you accomplish that? What was your goal with that? Yeah, it really comes from a very simple belief. There are only two modes in a company, pre-product market fit and post-product market fit. And at any moment in time, a company can have multiple products that have product market fit or they don't. And when you have product market fit, it's pretty clear, right? It's kind of like a punch in the face. Things are just growing and you just can't do anything to stop it. And you're literally dr drowning in work, right? It's just like, oh my God, it's coming in from all angles. And ba just based on that simple belief that there's only two modes, pre-product market fit and post, um, what I did was I just took a look at the business and asked, hey, what products have product market fit? They're just growing despite ourselves, right? Despite us you know, yeah. there's a bunch of drag and everything. It's still growing. And then what are the products that don't have product market fit? Um, could there be product market fit, right? Is there, is there, is there a path here or not? Um, and then for any of the products that do, do not meet the bar, just cut it, right? Like let's just not waste any time on it and let's just cut it. Uh, and once you have that, you know, once you have that matrix uh, basically figured out, then you want to move with extreme urgency, right? Because every day matters, every week matters. Um, and I actually, in, in, inside the company, I actually have a, um, the team nicknames it the Doomsday Clock. It's basically number of weeks until Q1 ends, number of weeks until 2023 ends. And, you know, I think people always overestimate the amount of time there is in a quarter or in a year. Yeah. And, and I, I really do like to just move with an incredible sense of urgency. So once we know what products we want to, you know, amplify post-product market fit or and products we want to um, build that are pre-product market fit, move with urgency. Let's get the information we need. Uh, if it's working, great. If not, cut. Let's go on to the next thing. It's always thinking about as like managing a product portfolio, especially as a company scales. And then for your products, you have three different stakeholders. You, you have a network effect business with the GPs who bring deals mm -hmm. to the platform, LPs yeah. who invest behind them, and the founders. So how have you managed the trade-offs or how do you view which stakeholder to take care of first 
because I know you've launched products basically for GPs, which I and I'd argue for LPs as well and founders. Yeah. So, you know, how do you make those trade offs or figure out how to serve all three stakeholders? Yeah, I, I would actually say there's a fourth Angelus. Okay. Um, and uh, so it's basically kind of like a, a four, four legged stool, if you will. Actually, it's literally like a chair. Yeah. In terms of how to make the trade offs, it, it, it really comes down to um, what does each party care about? What's really important? And then how do you, and then when there's a conflict in terms of what's important, you have to understand what is the scarce resource and then what's the commoditized resource, right? And as we approach any decision, whether it's a product decision or a pricing decision, we're really taking all of those things into account. So it's never just a, oh, it's just this variable we care about. We actually have to take a look at the entire uh, piece and we have to consider, hey, what trade-off are we willing to take on? Because it could lead to some negative decline in some, in some metric, right? And that's okay because we'll see an increase in this metric that we yeah. care about. Um, and, and so it's not a, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a simple formula. It really is about taking each decision, understanding the trade-off, um, and then really asking like, what's the least worst option? Because especially when you have a, um, uh, a marketplace where you have multiple uh, players there, and you're dealing with a zero-sum thing, there's zero-sum decision, someone is going to be slightly annoyed and you just have to like approach it with care and also just approach it with understanding what the expectations are uh, and, and this all the way from like how we build product to how we price to how we change pricing if we need to, um, that we just think about it that way. And then last question about AngelList experience, and I want to get into the venture market today. Yeah. Um, you've talked about the importance of distribution and AngelList deals in this a regulated industry. So how have you thought about regulation? How have you changed distribution since you've joined? Yeah, um, I would say distribution's actually stayed um, uh, the same uh, for the last few years, which has been through a network of yeah. uh, like referrals and or just organic word of mouth from GPs. And that's, by the way, just the best type of growth that you can possibly ask for. Just wow your customers so much that they can't stop talking about it. And so the observation has always been, hey, the literal job of a GP is to like network. That is literally their job, right? Network with other GPs, network with founders. And so if we can make sure that we have an incredible product experience for them, they will then rave about AngelList. And especially if we have a differentiated product, which is incredibly important, then um, they'll rave about that and then we'll just start seeing business. So the part that surprises most people is that uh, we have, we still have one salesperson in the company um, and we've, uh, you know, we've had mixed investments in marketing, right? We've, yeah. uh, uh, and so a lot of it has just been like organic inbound, um, and uh, that, that's been growing the, uh, the platform so far. I'd like to talk a bit about the current venture market. You joined yep. in 2019. You saw the boom times. Of, you know, you saw the fear of 2020 at the beginning of yep. COVID. You saw the boom times right after that. Now you've gone to this other period, which is different than the 2021. So especially for the Canadian, because most of our listeners are Canadian. How would you describe the current market? Is this the new normal? Is this return to normal? Like what, what are you seeing in from a funding perspective and market valuations? Yeah, so what we're seeing is, um, I would say the late stage is definitely impacted quite a bit because it's the closest to the public markets in terms of the journey that a startup goes on. And so series B valuations have been cut by 50% um, and overall volume of those deals have definitely gone down. 
as we move closer to the early stage market, uh, call that pre-seed, seed, series A, um, pre-seed and seed have actually been quite resilient um, in terms of valuation. It's starting to come down a little bit. Um, there's a little bit of crack in the seams, but I honestly think it's about, this is my personal conjecture on this one. I think it's actually going to reverse because of the whole AI boom now. Yeah. Um, and just some context for uh, folks who are new to the industry. The tech industry goes through cycles, right? And you have to understand what cycle each one is in because in a cycle, everything that is about that cycle is like invested in it. People get very excited about it. everything that's not about that cycle is a lot of, um, there's, a, there's not as much investment that goes into it. And so I've been in uh, several cycles at this point as I got into tech in, uh, in 2009 originally. And I've kind of seen different cycles from social to mobile to you know, logistics on demand. Um, and now it's an AI. So that's why I actually think the trend will reverse at the pre-seed and seed stage. But even across all industries, pre-seed and seed have been quite resilient. Uh, Series A slightly impacted uh, to down in terms of uh, volume of investments getting done. But at the early stage, like we're actually seeing quite a healthy market um, across the board. And, and if let's go to like the different stakeholders for founders, mm -hmm. what should they be doing differently? Let's say early stage founders, what should they be doing differently than they were doing a year and a half ago, if anything? Let's say pre-seed and seed. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for pre-seed and seed, a few things. One is this has always been my view. I would only raise the capital that you need to make progress, right? to get to the next step. In this market, I would definitely make sure you have some working demo to show because that will... I think that that'll be much easier to raise off of than just a slide deck. That said, there are investors that do raise or that do invest just off a slide deck. So, you know, I would take this advice with, with a grain of salt. It really depends on who you're talking to. But generally, you'll be able to create that round when you have a demo and people can actually see it, feel it. And then in terms of logistics around how to raise the round, I would focus more on the, you know, more on creating a round with multiple investors versus just a lead early on, I think you'll actually have a much faster feedback cycle in terms of getting the round done. And then you can actually leave the seed round for a lead or for a series A, right? So there, there are more than enough VCs that are playing, that are participating you know, in, in rounds early on where they're going to help create this, the set of investors that are going to come in versus needing to find a lead that early. Those are the key things that I would really focus on. And then I guess for Canada, I would actually, like if you're raising from Canada, I would also look for VCs that have ties to Silicon Valley or even people that are centered or in and around Silicon Valley, because I've generally noticed this about Canada that if you have folks that aren't as anchored in Silicon Valley, it leads to very different behavior relative to Silicon Valley, relative to what I've seen. And I would really work extra hard to make sure that there's some anchoring to the way Silicon Valley works, whether, you know, like you, you obviously are connected to AngelList yeah. and so you, you understand the Silicon Valley network extremely well, or you have a VC that is based out of Silicon Valley or maybe another part of the US, maybe New York or, uh, or LA, but generally you want someone that's come from the US tech scene, because I have noticed that it is fundamentally different how they operate than than the Canadian tech scene. And I know this because my, my brother and sister are both entrepreneurs and founders. Yeah, <laughs> go figure. And my sister has been sharing stories with me of her attempting to raise money in Canada. And my, you know, my response is like, oh my God, that's insane. That, 
no, don't do it. Right. That's just crazy. And my brother also attempted at one point, I'm like, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll just get you. So I, I have like, I'm actually seeing different things come up as they're, as they've attempted to raise money in Canada. And uh, I, I, yeah, I will say the, the terms are um, onerous and interesting. Yeah. I'm not saying that we're not, just clarification for any Canadian GPs listeners. We're not talking about you. We're talking about someone else, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and, and how about for like, just one last question about the market and then just two quick questions, let you, cause I know you've been very uh, generous with your time for LPs. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. a lot of them have retrenched. Yeah. But what should they actually be doing in this market? Like, you know, what's, if, if you're an investor investing in funds or directly, I'm not talking about the GPs because the GPs will be investing, but the LPs, how should they be reacting to the market? Oh, for LPs, absolutely should be investing in this market. Yeah. I mean, the I've, I've made this comment before. Technology cycles are very unlinked from the macro cycle. And what we're going through right now is around large language models and AI is outstanding. And, and I've actually been very close to the technical details on this one. I've been actually very deep in the technical details of exactly what's happening and build and writing, writing code around it. I still write code. And it, it really is the iPhone moment at this point. And I actually I did a conversation with a Fireside Chat with Sam Altman uh, right before ChatGPT when Live was just part of Angelus Confidential. And a lot of the predictions, if you will, that he's made in there are, it, it, I actually believe in. And I think it's going to transform every industry. And so if you think about that and you think about the technology cycle is unlinked from the macro cycle and you believe that this is the iPhone and then you believe that all these companies are getting started, obviously not all of them will work, but some of them will be massive companies in the future, then you'd want to invest now, right? This is actually the time to invest uh, into, in, into funds. Now, I do agree that the moment is kind of an odd moment, right? Because LPs could have liquidity issues. I think writing off and saying, no, I'm not going to invest at all in venture right now is actually the opposite thing of what you really should be doing. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm still an LP and multiple funds, multiple venture funds. And I continue, I plan to continue to be a LP and multiple venture funds. I actually think now is a great time to invest because you, you know, the market has cooled off, which means yeah. not as much capital in the market, which means, you know, the founders that are going to raise can raise at, at reasonable valuations as they get series A, series B and onwards. Yeah. Um, couldn't, you know, as an investor, I couldn't agree with you more on all that. <laughs> Maybe mean you're a bit biased. Uh, yeah. You know, could ask, I have another like 40 questions asked, but the last one I'll leave it with. If someone wants to get in touch with you, learn more about you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Oh, uh, twitter.com slash adblock. You can just find me on there. Okay. You, you know, so you got, you were early enough that you got your name. Yeah. Well, my name is adblock. So I'm, I'm lucky <laughs> enough that I don't have many people with my name. I think uh, there's like two people in the world or three people in the world. My name, I searched it on Facebook one time. Okay. Interesting. Um, there's a few <laughs> more, there's a few more Alex's out there. Uh, Avlock, thanks so much for your time and your transparency. I love the learnings you shared and I have a feeling we might have a few follow-up questions. We might, we might just send you and get uh, written answers for if that's okay. Yep. Sounds good. Great cool. to do this. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much uh, for people listening. And if you liked what you heard and you want to know more about that, uh, know more about our future podcast or read about what's going to Canadian ecosystem, you can subscribe to a newsletter at techto.org backslash newsletter, or you can um, look up Founders Journey in wherever you listen to a podcast and subscribe to it there.